Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Aaron McDonald, an aerospace engineer and an astrophysicist. We'll spend a lot of time discussing how various scientific principles apply to science fiction, and in particular, Star Trek. I do have to admit I went into this episode with a little bit of trepidation, because, to be very honest, these are concepts that I understand on, at best, a kindergarten level, but that ended up not slowing us down at all, and we had a great back and forth with all sorts of weird twists and turns, so let's get right to it. On mic today, we have Dr. Aaron McDonald. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. So excited to talk to you here. Um, so I'm going to explain for the people who don't know about you, but really should. Uh, you are an astrophysicist, an aerospace engineer, and the host of a YouTube series called Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. That is correct. <laughs> Last one is the only one I'm really understanding. So I'm going to... Um, <laughs> no worries. Uh, you're, you're one of those people that people like to listen to you talking when they have no idea what you're saying, because you're, <laughs> you're talking about literally what makes the universe. Yes, yeah. And what is, what's amazing is you do get very excited about that. You you, you communicate a, 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 a passion for the knowledge itself, and you like seeking it just for the knowledge. And that that's that's you've got a great estate for the Sioux. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm definitely passionate about teaching science to the public. I love, obviously, a big sci-fi fan, and so I love being able to use science fiction to teach really complex ideas to the public. And yeah, it's just, it's a blast for me. Okay. So you, you spent time thinking about the makeup of the universe, and then you go to work, and you actually build stuff that flies into the air, and then you decide to take a step to the right <laughs> and you go on Star Trek Discovery showing them what how this stuff works on the back end. It, it basically becoming almost in the entertainment industry. So you do that because you just like using science fiction? Well, yeah. I mean, when I work with writers in general, it's usually, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect job for me, basically. Anytime I get to do science fiction consulting is just an absolute blast. Um, so I'm not officially a consultant with Star Trek Discovery, but I talk about the science of Star Trek all the time. Um, yeah, I was on the cruise last year. I'm going to be on the cruise next year. I was in Star Trek Las Vegas. I've written some articles um, because I think Star Trek has always played such a big role in inspiring scientists that People say, you know, can watch it and just say, like, I want to live in space. That's cool technology. And then it kind of puts a bug in their head that maybe they can do that and maybe they can get us from point A to point B. Um, you know, having video chat like we're doing now and communicators mm -hmm. and everything is is technology that was science fiction back in the 60s. And so what I love is when I get to consult on science fiction, I really take like a yes and approach because I'm not a writer. I'm not... Uh, I'm not great at world building or coming up with characters. It's just not not who I am naturally. But I love being able to just say like, okay, if that's what you want to do, let's try to make the science as accurate as possible. And especially I think these days when we have so much content out there, that really helps a franchise stand on its own two legs um, because people love that fact and people dig into that. It's like finding an Easter egg, you know, when you learn what science is accurate in science fiction. And I like how you hit on that there. One of the things I really enjoyed about listening to your talks was that you 
have a great appreciation for how the science can work and what it does, and you will occasionally just point out places where mm, it doesn't quite work like that in the real world, but you have a great respect for the storytelling process, and sometimes the story does need to come first. And there are other scientists out there, I'm not going to name names, who don't <laughs> seem to have that sympathy. Correct. And I know many of them and I work alongside a lot of scientists who, I mean, they'll, when they find out what I do, you know, they outright are just like, man, I can't, I can't watch that. My dad's a scientist and he hates science fiction because, because it does break the laws. But, but I think when you do find that heart and ultimately it's the storytelling that draws people in and, uh, you know, sometimes the story has to go first. I think one of my favorite examples is in The Martian, you know, that um, the wind, the air pressure on Mars is not high enough at all. It's 0.6% what it is here, 0.6% what it is here on Earth. And uh, that means if you have wind, it's not actually going to push anything. You're never going to feel that wind. And so it's never going to knock over a satellite that impales an astronaut. And uh, <laughs> But then we don't have a story, you know? Right. So, um, so it is a trade. And and I do love working with writers to just, I mean, sometimes you do get a challenge where it's just like, okay, <laughs> this, this is hard. <laughs> there's, there's no science in here to justify what you're trying to do. So let's just make it as vague as possible. <laughs> Maybe we can get away with it. And if you have to just have literal magic, that's when Q comes in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Just, you know, pulling a cue or an orb or profits or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. you can make that happen. So what is your favorite trick if you have one? Oh, yes, I do. Um, so my favorite series is Deep Space Nine. I am actually, my partner is re-watching it, and he hasn't really ever sat down and watched it from beginning to end. You know, he kind of watched it as it was on TV. And so I love being able to watch it with someone who's kind of watching it for the first time, like knows the stories and obviously sees enough of my talks. <laughs> He's picked up a lot of that stuff. Um but man, it's a good show. It is a good series. And we just started season four. The Way of the Warrior is like uh -huh. top, top, probably my top 10, like all time Star Trek episodes. Um, but my favorite captain, I mean, is Janeway. I just, as a scientist, you know, turned leader, I, I have a special connection with her. And see what's great about Janeway and what's the Voyager premise is probably the cleverest premise of any of the series. Just Agreed. because of, of, of the flip-flop of it all. is that the ship that was trapped on the other end of the galaxy is the ship that was least equipped to be there. Exactly. Yeah, with the crew that was not expecting to be out there no. that long. I mean, the, the, the Intrepid-class ship is literally the minivan of the, the <laughs> star. It, it's, it's tiny. It's meant to go place to place. And they had no science crew. The only balance they had was the captain who wasn't even a scientist anymore, just had a science background. Right. And was like their sole source until they had seven on board exactly exactly and it's so funny for people who may not have seen the size comparisons voyager is tiny uh -huh. <laughs> it's mind-blowingly small uh, but but yeah and then they go through and but i love that janeway gets the opportunity where you can see when she gets excited like they did write her so well that she is a scientist at heart yeah. where there's an opportunity to learn something and contribute and when i get into you know sometimes heated discussions about favorite captains you know a lot of the argument against Janeway is like she got diverted so much from going home but I think she saw it as a responsibility 
being in this Delta Quadrant where no, where Starfleet had never been before to document it and to learn things and to actually bring information back home. And, uh, you know, and to the extent that they built the Astrometrics Lab, which is my, you know, dream home mm-hmm. <laughs> on a starship. But yeah, oh, so good. Very, very clever. I said, I'm also a DS9 fan too. That's my favorite, but I have to give respect to Voyager just for coming up with that major premise. It is. It's brilliant. Uh, But, you know, like watching Deep Space Nine and really affirming that it is my favorite series, I think so much of it is the amount of like behind the scenes downtime you feel when you see them sitting at quarks and having meals and having conversation. There's so much more of that than there is in the other series. You know, Bashir and O'Brien just like playing bar games with each other. And yeah, I mean, we had 10 forward and we had mess halls and like areas where there was unwinding but there wasn't nearly that depth of relationships and and character building that they did there and ds9 was really the only show where you saw people who weren't tasking their life with exploring the universe you saw people who just wanted to earn a buck or just wanted to you know go to school or i mean you saw so many average people on that station and that gave the depth to the universe that you didn't you still haven't seen since really no, not really. And it is, it's, um, you know, because a lot of people, it's really similar, you know, to Babylon 5, which was out around the same time. But um, but it had much, I think, I think much more levity and managed to not, it had a perfect balance of like long-term story arcs and then just the single episode stories that I just think the balance is really good. The characters are so good. It's, it's just the best. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up a, the 90s era of Trek, because there's a book I wanted to ask you about, and you might already know what it is. Do you recall seeing the physics of Star Trek? Yes, I have. Yeah, definitely. I've read it three times. I kind of get it. What's (laughs) your gist on it 20 years out with so much more that we've learned since then? Oh, man. I mean, that that's really the gist of it is that how much we have learned and how much our technology has accelerated that you would think of physics of Star Trek book that came out 20 years ago. When you watch Voyager and Deep Space Nine, it doesn't feel that aged. But the science is so so aged compared to where we are now you know one of the things i talk about the most because i did my my phd and it was uh, general relativity and gravitational waves is what i studied and space time and general relativity is fundamental to like warp drive and so even you know the strides that we made in the 90s when detecting gravitational waves wasn't even thought of something that could happen now we've detected them you know 20 years later and taken us one tiny, tiny step closer to having warp drive. But it's a step. It's just a small one. And uh, and even the technology, too. You know, Kindles. Like, I joke, if you look at the original first-generation Kindles, those are data pads. Like, mm-hmm. They're the exact size and just shape of that. Those weren't around, you know? And, and video conferencing and the Internet was there, but nowhere near how it is now. And... Um, I just think, I think it's amazing. And the it's not so much the physics that has advanced, but more the technologies and the applications and the steps that we've taken to get even closer. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Star Trek has continued to inspire generations and generations of scientists and engineers that are contributing to those discoveries. So yeah, I love it. It's, it's crazy. It's just weird that 
Star Trek doesn't seem to age that much, that much. <laughs> Caveat, it does age a little bit, but um, but that, you know, but the physics of Star Trek book from the 90s has aged a lot. Uh, it's interesting. So, I mean, from a layman's point of view, the thing I worry about most is not inventing the transporter or the warp drive or the holodeck. I really just can't get my head around ever having a functional inertial dampener. Is there any <laughs> hope for that? I, so I have I have thought about this so much. So the way I picture the technology of an inertial, so the way that it's kind of been described, and for those of people who might not be aware, right, it's just this idea of with inertia is that your body wants to stay at rest, or if it's moving, it wants to keep moving, which is why we wear seatbelts and, and all of that. And uh, if your ship is going to go from zero to faster than the speed of light, it's uh, going to feel some serious inertia. <laughs> and so, therefore, uh, we build inertial dampeners. And the way um, I visualize how they work conceptually is essentially you would have to have your ship have the interior of the ship somewhat isolated. So almost like a bubble that's running from the outside of the ship, from, you know, the hull of the ship. And then you have the interior and that there is actually some distance there where they build some sort of bubble. And I mean, you could say too, that might be where they put their um, gravity generators because those are never really gone into either. And so if you have this bubble, you could in theory have some sort of material that does better with inertia. It's like a giant, you know, if you go zero to 60 in your car and you're in a plastic seat, you're going to feel that differently from being in a cushioned seat. So if the ship has some sort of like cushioning that would be able to deal with that. Now the the speeds we're talking about, we don't have any material that's going to help us with that. And I actually now talking about it, I'm definitely going to sit down and do the calculation for how much, if you had like foam cushions between the hull of the ship and the interior, how big they would need to be to protect from the inertia, because <laughs> I'm betting it's a lot. I did that calculation with um, with Assassin's Creed, where to figure out how much of a hay bale you would actually need to break your fall from like a <laughs> hundred hundreds foot tall tower and it's like 80 of those hundred feet, <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, so, uh, you know, and then there's like um, the non-Newtonian fluids, right? That oobleck, if people have played with like cornstarch and water, uh, where if you punch it, it's solid, it feels solid. But if you slowly insert your hand, you're able to insert your hand. It, it behaves more like a liquid. And so, I mean, we can give it the catch-all that there's some materials research that goes on out there that is able to react really well to going, you know, even hitting inertial you know, hitting uh, high speeds and be an inertial dampener. <laughs> That's my thought. That's a long answer. <laughs> no, but I, I could take that. It's interesting you went into materials and materials research because um, I got into this stint where I was reading a lot of really old sci-fi, like Vern era stuff. And the idea that, well, you know, there are some materials that don't, that allow light to get through. Maybe there's some materials that allow gravity to get through. And you just right. have to find the right one, which is, silly when you first hear it and yet it's like but that's kind of sort of happened in some ways in that we've at least we've that's been the process the thought process we didn't do it that's how we thought about it 
Right. And I think, you know, the strides that we've made in just studying gravity and how much we've learned about it, there's still schools of thought, you know, is, is gravity a force? Does it have a force particle associated with it? Or in my opinion, is it just the shape of the universe? And are you able to use mass energy equivalents to somehow, um, you know, simulate a mass presence that could warp space time to simulate gravity? Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to think about. One, speaking of the technology in Star Trek, I think one of the things that cracks me up the most is you can really date science fiction too by some of the technobabble they throw in. And with Star Trek, they really didn't get into it in the shows that much. But in you know Next Generation, that's where they came out with the technical manual for the Enterprise. And if you look at it, the primary component of the gravity generator is a superconductor. And for me, that really dates to the 80s because the 80s and 90s were all about the power of superconductors and what they could do. And so throwing that in there is like a nice little shout out really kind of dates it with what is the cool new technology we're learning about. Mm -hmm. The next gen in general had a lot of those little fringes on there. The galaxy class ship in general is one that just screams 80s. Yeah. With love, with love. With love, good, yeah. But still, I, I mean, I actually think the Constitution class aged much better in the grand scheme of things. I would agree with you on that one, for sure. So, okay, so we've got the inertial dampeners down. What would, you, what would be your take on Heisenberg compensators? Ah, <laughs> oh, I love Heisenberg compensators. They are my favorite... Thing. Honestly, even though like I want to be a warp drive expert and I want to invent warp drive, Heisenberg compensators is the perfect example for what I do because the reason we can't have transporters is because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can never know exactly where a particle is. The more you know about where it is, there is a limit to it. And the more you know about it, the less you know about its momentum. So, and even then you're never gonna be perfectly knowing exactly where a particle is. And so we can't make transporters because in order to disassemble someone and rebuild them, um, whether you know out of other material or moving their particles, you still need to know where the particles go. And so Star Trek just recognizes that by saying, we built a Heisenberg compensator as part of the transporter. We fixed it in the future. We fixed, we acknowledge that Heisenberg is hard, makes transporters difficult and impossible. So now we have a compensator that fixed it. And I love that. I don't even need to get into the details. And that's exactly like what I do when I'm, when I'm dealing with the science fiction stories, like we were talking about where the science has kind of gone off the rails a little bit and I'm trying to steer it back on, but we're sacrificing a little bit of story that we look for opportunities like that to say like, you know what, let's just acknowledge that we're breaking science and we're in a science fiction realm and we give, it's like inertial dampeners too, we give a shout out to the science we're breaking and just leave it there. And I love that. I mean, it's still, people will get into the science of how do you, what, what kind of vortex would you need to travel back in time and what kind of calculations <laughs> like, well, they just went around the sun backwards, and that's just, they wrapped yeah. it up that way. That, that was a good enough answer at the time. Right, exactly, exactly. And actually, one of the better explanations for time travel in Star Trek. <laughs> There's like a modicum of science there compared to, you know, chronotons, which are completely <laughs> made up time particles. <laughs> the idea of a time particle in general, just now that you mentioned it, it's just, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. 
So where do you see uh, the science going in the future? Where, where do you think it's going to be a case of the show gets really, uh, the show actually starts basing a lot more around the science or is it still going to be story driven? Um, well, I think it's always going to be story driven. And I think especially with Discovery, what they've done is um, they've built up so many great characters that we are now very attached to. And they did kind of get themselves, you know, give themselves a lot more license by how season two ended, you know, that now um, they're in the future and they're not tethered to this like weird middle ground of technology that they're trying to somehow marry the technology that they have with where they had in the original series. And so now they're free of that. And they can even, you know, just say, even though we don't have that technology, that technology exists out here, you know, in our in our new uh, point in time. And so I think that they have a lot more liberties that they can play with. Um, not that that stopped them before, board drive comes to mind yeah. but yeah but i think that uh yeah they're they're kind of freed up a little bit uh, to play with the technology and i definitely think it's you know there's always going to be because we're exploring space that's kind of the fundamental you know ethos of star trek so there's always going to be some underlying science to it even if it's just a throwaway line some sort of techno babble but um, the stories where it's at, the stories are the reason we keep going back and watching Star Trek. You know, we love our characters. It was a really awkward way for me to ask that, but I actually had a specific example in mind in oh, season please. two with the Red Angel, common thread throughout the whole season. It started out, and most of the season, it was approached like it was some sort of superhuman experience that they were having, and as almost like something out of the X Files. Yeah, and then totally. as time went on, it's like they started to chip away at us. Like, okay, no, this, there, this, there's some sort of logic here. We can see a pattern. We can see a sense to it. And it just, I thought that was very interesting how they just kind of managed to take something that on the first episode seemed completely unbelievable. And then they added enough background to it. I really like that take, actually. This idea that they, that it was a very scientific approach to solving that problem. You know, whether it was wh whatever it turned out to be, they still approached it as like, let's try to find a pattern. Let's try to find an explanation for this. And, uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, I really like that perspective. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I do. It's one of the things I like to look at for in Star Trek is the moments where they kind of have to deal with the fact that even with, with science and with all the research we've done, there are still just moments of human experience that we can't get our head around. Yeah. And sometimes we just have to throw up our hand and say, I don't know. Yeah, and I think um, Deep Space Nine probably challenged that the most, you know, with the prophets and Cisco and his, his sort of fighting his background and his own personal story played a part in a religion that he was not ever a role in or never grew up in or anything. And so trying to, yeah, just accept that. And um, that's that's where I think, you know, some people uh, get a little burnt out with the, the Bajoran stories sometimes on Deep Space Nine because there's so much, there's so many different kinds of stories where you go from the Dominion War to dealing with the Bajoran religion can kind of be a little bit of whiplash. Um, but I think the way they handled it was always done very well um you know uh kai win is still like my love to hate 
character number one that mm-hmm. my blood pressure gets up when I see her face, but they're like my favorite episodes. <laughs> so yeah, it's a blast. And 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 the key with DS9 was even with Kai Wynn, who was probably the villain upon villains, there were moments where she was in the right. And yeah. and most shows wouldn't take that step. And there were, you know, Kira on the other hand was the hero and occasionally was in the wrong. And yeah. It, it was a subtlety you just didn't often see anywhere else. Yeah, I was I had a really interesting discussion at a at Dragon Con one time about uh, Kai Wynn. And it really changed my perspective because we were all venting about, you know, the love to hate villain on villain, just oh, Kai Wynn, man. And, and then someone mentioned, they were like, well, do you think that maybe the prophets intentionally ignored Kai Wynn to drive her to the Paw Wraiths and like fulfill, you know, the story? And just one of the person's reaction was like, I'm not supposed to feel sympathy for Kai Wynn. Like, I refuse this explanation. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you love to hate her. <laughs> ah, I, I'm still a Ducat fan when all is said and done. Really? <laughs> yes, very much so. That's funny. Yeah, no, Garrick is my my number one Cardassian for sure. <laughs> I, I can agree with that. Because with Garrick, there would be times he would help you but he was helping you today because yeah. it worked for his advantage. Tomorrow is a different story. Exactly. I always love when he said to Bashir about, you know, when Bashir was telling him about the boy who cried wolf and he was, he was like, you know, well, what am I supposed to get out of that? And he's like, you know, you just, you can't lie. He's like, no, just don't tell the same lie twice. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Well, I should start wrapping up so that I can, I'm can. sure you have a lot to do. Um, but where can somebody find you if they want to catch you online? Yes, please. Um, so I'm most easily found on Twitter. It's at Dr. Aaron Mack, D.R. Aaron Mack. Uh, that's where I post just it's either space or science fiction <laughs> is what you'll find there. And uh, it's also where I post some of my um, appearances. You can also find my website is www.aaronpmacdonald.com. Uh, that's MacDonald with an A. And uh, that's where I'll post, you know, like this podcast and links to all the other sort of videos and interviews and articles and everything that I've done from there. And uh, yeah, if you want me to come to your local Comic-Con or, you know, science fiction convention and talk about the science behind science fiction, let your organizers know, because I love doing this stuff. I can think of a few in the area. I could drop your name and see what happens. Please do. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I would love to have you back anytime. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. I would like to thank Aaron McDonald for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. Now, to double up on the Star Trek goodness... The Geek Resources section of the show today is going to feature one of the best Star Trek sites out there. It's called Memory Alpha. And if you don't know this site, you should head on over there and read it extensively. You'll find it at memory-alpha.wikia.com. And you'll find the link in our show notes at www.aaronbossig.com. What Memory Alpha is, is a wiki for all pretty much anything ever related to Star Trek on or off screen. If there's any bit of tidbit of information, 
a planet name, a scientific principle, a vehicle, even down to unnamed characters have some sort of entry on Memory Alpha. So I really think that the best thing to do is just to head on over to that site and just start reading and reading and reading. It's a little bit heavy on ads, but it's totally worth it. And to wrap up for the community building part of the show, I'm going to make a suggestion. Do you know somebody who would really enjoy podcasts, this podcast in particular, but doesn't even know what a podcast is? Why not take the initiative and make the introduction? Get their phone, show them how to download a podcast app, and subscribe them to the Hungry Trilobite podcast. Or if you don't want to go messing with their phone or they just don't really have that inclination, try handing them our YouTube series as well. A lot of times I've found that the YouTube links are much more palatable to people who just don't really want to get into the whole podcast culture, but would really enjoy podcasts nonetheless. As always, you can check out everything you need at our website, www.aaronbosick.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.